Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm Kelly Haywood, your host. This broadcast is a little different. Tonight, you're traveling back to join us for journalist, critic, and Appalachian food writer Ronnie Lundy's reading here in the Apple Shop Gallery before our recent holidays. Then, after the news break, you'll hear the rebroadcast of Ronnie's conversation with Elizabeth Sanders and Mimi Pickering on WMMT's Honky Tonk Jukebox. So have a seat, get a warm mug of coffee, and take a listen. for WMMT, and I want to welcome everyone here this evening. As part of our regular programming, we often feature artists from throughout the region on air. But tonight, you are truly in a special place because we are happily hosting one of the most important regional writers to ever document Appalachian history and culture. I first met Ronnie Lundy when I took her food writing workshop at the Hyman Settlement School's Appalachian Writers Workshop in July of 2015. And while just like everyone who eats, I knew that people come together over food and they have really strong beliefs about when, how, where, and what to eat. But I didn't realize how our life story can so truthfully be told around the food that we eat. So I'm still writing essays and stories, writing on scents from the oven, textures in the mouth, and flavor combinations that define a time and place. Her cookbook, Shuck Beans, Stack Cakes, and Honest Fried Chicken, was the first regional American cookbook to capture with authenticity the foodways of the Mountain South. Not only this, but it features the memories of some of country music's favorite stars to bring its 180 recipes to life. Born in Corbin, Kentucky, Ronnie Lundy has long chronicled the people of the hillbilly diaspora as a journalist and cookbook author. She is a former restaurant reviewer and music critic for the Courier Journal in Louisville, former editor of Louisville Magazine, and has contributed to many national magazines such as Eating Well, Gourmet, Bon Appetit, and Esquire. In 2009, Ronnie received the Southern Food Ways Alliance Craig Claiborne Lifetime Achievement Award. But this evening, we are here to celebrate her latest book, Vittles, in case you were wondering, An Appalachian Journey with Recipes. It explores this surprisingly diverse history and vibrant present of food in the Mountain South through recipes, stories, traditions, and innovations. So let's give a full-bellied welcome to Ronnie Lundy as she comes tonight to share her work with us. It's hard to be introduced like that. I, I always feel like I'm supposed to die, you know? It's, it's like, wow, it's not going to get any better, is it? No. no. Um, it's wonderful to be here. This is one of my absolute favorite places on earth. The creativity, the work that has come out of Apple Shop, the people who have been here, who continue to be here, the work that continues to go on. 
I really don't have words to say how important it is, the work that you all have done here. The book Vittles, a little bit of background. Vittles is a book that I kind of got the first idea for eight years ago. The gist of the book is this. We live in an area where something very unique is happening in terms of sustainable food and foodways. Ten years ago, people started writing about eating locally. They started about writing about fermenting. They started talking about snout-to-tail butchery. They started talking about seed saving. They began these practices. All of these kinds of things. Then people started to talk about how do we plant and raise food in a way that supports the land and supports our families' generations into the future. And in most places in the United States where people were asking these questions and coming to this way of thought, they had to go look this information up. They had to go to libraries. They had to look in old newspapers. They had to dig around and find things that had been written long ago. That was even happening when I was a wandering young hippie girl trying to plant, well, probably not plant some seeds, sow some wild oats of my own. (laughs) But we were always having to refer back, back, back to things that were written or create things ourselves. But what I saw in Appalachia, and I was at a particularly magical event in Asheville, North Carolina, and Asheville is a place where the perfect storm comes together there. But what I was seeing was that these young people, they were coming out of Warren Wilson College, they were coming back to their family farms from where they'd been elsewhere. They weren't having to look this stuff up. They could talk to the farmer next door. They could talk to their grandparents. They could go 10 miles down the road and meet a hog butcher who was butchering their own hog and find out how to do it. It was all still happening in Appalachia. It never went away. Part of that is because of our topography, the fact that that we just physically can't have industrial farms. You know, we can't have the giant pig lots up in a holler, and you can't plant amber waves of grain on your 20 acres that only five are arable, and they're in one-acre spots all around in different places. So we've had to understand sustainable practice. We've had to deal with a winter that the rest of the South doesn't get. We have to deal with a shortage of sunlight because our mountains come up so high that we have not just a briefer growing season in terms of the year, the number of days we get, but in terms of the number of hours we get. We have passed down seeds like no other place. Bill Best, uh, who I'm sure you all know, the amazing seed saver up in Berea, has probably over 800 by now, various bean seeds, green beans and butter beans. People send them to him with stories. Three quarters of them come from the Appalachian South from people in Appalachia who have saved beans. And I would say of that other quarter, probably a good third of them are coming from Washington State and Oregon State, where the loggers are who came there from the Appalachian South and took their seeds with them so they would have a taste of home. So this amazing thing was happening, and I felt like it was going to move beyond Asheville. You know, Asheville was kind of this, like I said, this magic place where there were people there with money who were going to buy this food. That's what I'm trying to say. And they aspired to it. They thought it was cool. They thought it was really, really hip. And Warren Wilson College was there, and they were teaching good practice in terms of farming. And land at that time, eight years ago, was still almost affordable there, no longer is. So I wondered, though, and I believed and I dreamed 
that this could be happening on a smaller scale in other places all around Appalachia. And I wanted to go out and look. I wanted to go out and find that story. I don't know how many of you all have dealt with explaining us to people in New York, but you can imagine how that book proposal was going there for eight years. You know, nobody got it. I finally, I had one editor who was pretty interested toward the end, and I thought we were getting somewhere until she called me up and asked me if we could drop Appalachia from the subtitle because of the associations with poverty. And I kind of felt like we weren't going to be working on the same book. <laughs> so by the time that, it, that I did find Francis Lamb, uh, the most amazing editor in the world, I had amassed a ton of information. Gary Nobbin and Jim Fedito are ethnobotanists, and they had done a study and released a study that showed that Appalachia is the largest and most diverse food shed in North America, possibly in the Western Hemisphere. Think about it. It's in competition with someplace in Central America that not only has mountains and plains, but a seacoast. But we're so diverse here, not just because we're biologically and botanically diverse, but also because people have continued these practices of seed saving, of hunting and foraging and harvesting. So that was really thrilling. I owe a tip of my hat to Dee Davis and the Daily Yonder, which I mined for stories of what was happening in the rural America, for crying out loud. There were wonderful stories in that newspaper, not only of people that I wanted to go interview, but just things that inspired me as well. And when I got to Francis Lamb, he got it. He totally got it, and he talked somebody into giving me enough gas money for my Chevy Astro van. I wish it were a better gas machine, but let me tell you, that thing can rock it. No, no. You should have seen me coming over Pine Mountain. You know? the, tra- the coal trucks were getting out of my way. No, no. Um, actually, everybody gets out of my way because down either side of that truck are these horrible white scratches. Um, it took me a really long time to figure out how wide it actually was. So um, anyway, I, so I got that Astro van. I traveled over 4,000 miles up and down, in and out through Appalachia, talking to people and interviewing them. The book is laid out talking about certain iconic foods. There's a chapter on corn. There's a chapter on beans, of course. There's a chapter on apples because Appalachia is appropriately called Appalachia. But then there are some chapters that deal with work, preserving husbandry. And the final chapter in the book is called Appalachian Spring. In the final chapter in the book, I begin by talking about Stanton, Virginia, which, yes, people really is in the Appalachians, even though many people in Stanton, Virginia, don't want to acknowledge that, although not as badly as the people in Monticello don't want to acknowledge that Jefferson really was making Appalachian wine down there. But Stanton is another one of those little towns where everything is perfectly set up. I wrote about some of the young and older restaurant people there and their stories in the book, but one of the things that I mention is that Ian Bowden, who has this fabulous restaurant called The Shack that made Esquire's number one best new restaurant in the United States. I mean, just totally craziness. Ian told me that when he came to Stanton to open a restaurant, he went to the farmer's market and looked to see if the food was there. And it was in amazing abundance. And then he went to the parking lot and looked at the cars and the license plates to be sure that the market was there for his restaurant. 
after I talked about Stanton, I talk about the fact that when you go above the Blue Ridge, you know, there's, you've got Asheville and Stanton and Knoxville and Chattanooga is becoming a really, really hot scene. You've got places like Blackberry Farm and the Old Edwards Inn in North Carolina. You've got Lewisburg, West Virginia. These are places where there have been tourist economies since the 1700s. And these are places where people can trade on that and can create sustainable foodways. It's a different story when you go on the other side of the mountains and when you come into coal country. And so I talk with Wendy Johnson, who is in Princeton, West Virginia, right down the road from Pipestem and the Appalachian Folklife Center. And she works with Grow Appalachia there. They have a garden. They're working with young people. But Wendy talked to me about the difficulty of trying to sell the food that she and her husband raise on their farm, their lambs, their beautiful vegetables, rabbit their daughter raises rabbits. Just this wonderful food that people in an urban area would be paying any price for and how hard it is to convince the people in her community who often are struggling to make their food budgets come together, how hard it is to be there and to survive. At the end of the conversation with Wendy, I ask her, would you say your work is sustainable? I ask, not at all sure what I mean, but she thinks about the question, and then what she says to me, I taught my kids how to grow their own food. I don't think it gets much more sustainable than that. (laughs) But I want to read to you the end of the book. You all will know some of the characters in this part. This is after I talk about Wendy, and I talk about the fact that coal country is not the same place for this kind of action. And so I'm on the road to Egypt, Kentucky, near the end of my journey, but with a wealth of stories in my head. Here's another one. Egypt was named when the post office was established in 1876. The story goes that the Dubbers were members of the Amex family who had moved there after the Civil War from Hancock County, Tennessee. The place seemed so isolated that the family felt exiled, they said, as if they'd been sent to farthest Egypt. But where transplanted Tennesseans once saw isolation... 140 years later, a returned Eastern Kentucky native, Laura Smith, and her husband, Joe Schroeder, see potential for building community. I first met Laura on Facebook in 2010 via the Southern Foodways Alliance. Despite our 30-year age difference, we discovered shared passions for all things Southern Appalachian, all things Dwight Yoakam, and chili buns. Laura came by the latter the same way I did, as she too was born in Corbin, Kentucky. Laura grew up in Corbin, the daughter of lawyers, and was encouraged, as the best and brightest from the region have long been, both subtly and directly, to seek a life outside the mountains. And for a while, this is what she did, graduating magna cum laude from New York University and continuing graduate studies in the prestigious folklore program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. But in between her studies and labors elsewhere, She was the Goat Girl at Celebrity Dairy Inn's farm in Silage City, North Carolina, for a while. She found herself repeatedly drawn back home to work in grassroots programs in eastern Kentucky, including Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, the Arts Collective Apple Shop in Whitesburg, and as the oral history director at the Laurel County African American Heritage Center. Now Laura and Joe live on 120 acres of mixed forest and pasture land in Egypt, which lies in Jackson County, which regularly makes the list of 100 poorest counties in the country. But where the census sees poverty, 
Laura sees the glimmer of possibility. Four miles from Big Switch, the name Laura and Joe have given their farm, there is a USDA-certified community kitchen, like the ones established in the early 20th century to provide home canners with equipment. This one is new, however, and available for personal use. The day we are there, shelves are filled with home canned food waiting to be picked up by the folks who put it up earlier in the week. But it's primarily available to create commercial products for sales should folks in the community desire, and Laura hopes to fan that desire. On this early Saturday in May, she has rented the kitchen so a group of friends can gather to make a feast for a party at the farm. The county kitchen is a long metal corrugated building sitting out in a wide field off a two-lane blacktop. Unappealing on the outside, on this Saturday, it's welcoming within. Laura's friends are dancing around the conventional ovens, stovetops, deep kettles, and prep areas of the kitchen to put together the feast. Emily Hilliard is elbow deep in flour and sweet potatoes for a masterful sonker. Amelia Ruth Kirby cracks jokes and eggs as she peels a few dozen for devilment, and Anna Bogle parses tincture from eyedroppers into chartreuse and gin to create a beverage just for the moment called Appalachian Spring. Nadia Roy sees to Wiley, Laura and Joe's two-month-old Buddha of a baby in a carrier propped on a long folding table, and Laura's mother, Marcia Smith, pops in and out bearing buttermilk, then chili buns, accompanied by impish three-year-old Alma. It seems as if Laura's dream of community is already realized, but a gathering of incredibly cool friends from near and far is not all that she envisions. The couple's five-year plan, Laura has told me, will begin with a line of eastern Kentucky foods made from produce from Big Switch Farm. Think gourmet, but affordably priced, chow chow, and heirloom tomato jams, and I'm also wanting to do Joe's grandma's old-time ketchup recipe, and I'm researching wild mustard so we can grow our own mustard seeds. But the plan grows. I want to tell the stories along with the products, Laura says, and she sees the community kitchen as a place to share not only work and recipes, but marketing strategies and ideas with others in the community. Many regional small producers who are making really good stuff are so small they don't do a good job at marketing, and most don't understand the value of their food in other places. In a few years, I'd like to launch an incubator program and curriculum for women interested in becoming food entrepreneurs on their own, out of the community kitchen. Maybe it's a nonprofit incubator, or maybe we just turn it into a women's workers-owned cooperative. Not sure yet. Got to see how the cornbread crumbles first. For Lauren Joe, this business built around food has a much larger dimension, one that connects to their grassroots organizing work, particularly in coal country, over the last few years. Here's Laura again. We are definitely in a moment with sustainable food systems in the mountains. Coal has been the sole economic force in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia for the last century with little attention paid to diversifying, but the reserves are running out, and with recent more stringent emission regulations and the nation turning away from coal-fired power plants, counties in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia have seen jobs evaporate at an alarming rate since the start of the new century. Hydraulic fracturing... Our fracking is on the table as one potential and controversial economic replacement for coal, but the conversation has also included support for agricultural development of cash crops such as hemp and sorghum cane, and for development of recreation, tourism, and food businesses. For several years now, Kentucky has had an active local agriculture movement throughout its many regions supported by the state government, and some of that attention has recently been focused on the mountains, with the state-sponsored Kentucky Proud brand expanding to include an Appalachian Proud label. In my own experience, 
Communities in the coal fields have been sharply divided, Laura observes, that divide breaking often vehemently over the economic benefits of jobs from coal versus the ecological damage. But people still unite around food because food taps into much deeper values. So while no one wants to talk about extractive industries, water, the uncertain economic future, people love to talk about food. A homegrown tomato, fresh corn, the seeds you saved from your mammal's garden, where a pawpaw tree is on your uncle's home place. Food creates this healing space where we can come together and talk about issues of sustainability and our future in a different way. Everyone back home is proud of their garden or their granny's garden, and that holds real value for people. The value of being able to produce our own food is something I believe Appalachians really want to hang on to. And that could provide the opportunity for local economic development and innovation as we navigate through some uncertain times ahead. I hang on to that thought as I carry a steaming sonker to the van, nestling it between a cooler filled with pop on one side and one with deviled eggs on the other. The drive to Big Switch takes just a few minutes, but when we turn into the dirt road that curves and dips between high brush and trees, it feels a little as if we're traveling back in time. The road was once a wagon trail, Laura and Joe bought the land from a Native American group that had used it for gatherings four times a year, and they've been told it was likely also once part of the warrior's path. We come to the space where the bottom stretches out from the ridge to the creek. It's a mountain farm, so only 40 of the 120 acres is in pasture, and of that, only about five acres is flat enough to be tillable. By summer, that acreage will be planted with hemp and a garden bursting in an abundance of tomatoes overflowing with peppers, Bill Best heirloom beans, and candy roaster squash. The rapid rhythmic rifts of Sourwood Mountain tempt us to dance out of our trucks and cars as we pull into park near the open-air pavilion where three musicians join in lively communion. Brett Ratliff, who works at the Heinemann Settlement School a few mountains over and will come back off and on all summer to help Joe clear the land, plant the hemp, clean an old logging road, mans the fiddle. Julie Shepard Powell, who lives in Nunsuch, Kentucky, while working on a PhD in anthropology and dreaming of homesteading with her hubby, Adrian, in Virginia, is womaning the guitar. Mike Costello, visiting from West Virginia, is playing banjo. He's the executive director of the West Virginia Wilderness Coalition and on the board of the West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition. The internet makes it possible for him to work remotely as it has enabled Laura to continue working with the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation now as their network officer for Central Appalachia and for Joe to remain connected with Rural Advancement Foundation International. So Mike and his partner, Amy Dawson, are working a piece of remote West Virginia land she inherited from her grandparents, and Mike says he dreams of someday creating a farm-to-table business at Lost Creek Farm. I speculate how the highways, both literal, many of them connecting mountain community to mountain community only in the past 25 years, and informational, have made it possible for these new young pioneers to diversify their personal ec economies in broad and once unimaginable ways. The outmigration of young people that has haunted the Appalachian South for over a century, while not stopping by any stretch, nevertheless shows signs of a shift. And of the best and brightest who have stayed or are returning, many are de determined to grow community along with food. Across the field, Joe fires up the wood oven and Laura and Emily roll out dough. A cloth is spread on a wooden picnic table under a spreading tree. 
The musicians grab chairs and their instruments and tote them over the grass to table side. The rolling, tumbling spin of brushy fork is perfect for setting the table, and soon we are gathered around a bounty of fresh greens tossed in sargum vinegar, rhubarb tart, flatbread hot from the oven with ham and pickled ramps, and more. Anna pours the Appalachian spring into round-bottomed glasses, sprinkles tiny violets and wildflowers in the white foam. We lift the glasses and see the field around us reflected in the tender green and violet and yellow. I look around the table and imagine I see the future in clear, young eyes. To Big Switch, someone says. To the mountains, says another. We all say amen, and then we dig in. This idea of food being floated as a piece, not an answer, obvious, it seems to me that we will never in the mountains have a mono industry again, but that we could create a variety of small sustainable industries and ways for people to make food that they can sell, but also to be able to feed themselves and their families, which is a piece that we started to lose when when people started to leave the farms. There's a place in here where I talk about the coal camps at the turn of the last century and union organizers who were going to the coal areas in Illinois and Colorado and then coming here talked about how the, uh, the miners and their families in Kentucky, West Virginia, and these coal fields were well-fed because their families continued to have gardens. And uh, he also noted that when the company thugs came in to start throwing people out, the first thing they did was to destroy the gardens. And then they moved everybody's furniture out. What part do you see food playing and how realistic? What has to happen for these dreams to come true for people? What are you envisioning for Whitesburg or your own communities? I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. Brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. The collapse of the coal industry has left many mining communities looking for a new economic path forward. Glennis Board spoke with a photographer who is helping people picture a new future for the coal fields. Rebecca Kiger is a documentary and portrait photographer born and raised in West Virginia. The images she captures are often exceptionally emotionally evocative. She says it takes a lot of patience and a little faith in both her process and her subjects. You have to imagine anything's possible. And then it allows for these magical things to happen in the frame. Kiger went south in West Virginia this year to capture images of ongoing initiatives in some of the communities hardest hit by the economic downturn in the coal industry. She focused on light, and relationships to capture what she says is a hopeful scene. Photography is painting with light, basically. And then, you know, the question that I've learned in these last years to continually ask myself while I'm working is, why are you doing this? Kiger says more than anything, more even than photography itself, she loves people 
She says what motivates her to capture compelling imagery is the desire to help tell their story. To find out if she hit her mark, we asked some of her subjects. That's pretty cool, actually. Captures the moment, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Danny Ferguson sits with Jacob Dyer. Ferguson is Dyer's mentor at the Coalfield Development Corporation in Huntington, West Virginia. The two are looking at some of the photos Kiger took of them while they were building a solar-powered training site in Kanawha County, West Virginia. It was a rough day that day. We was behind the gun real bad that day. We had a lot to get done by the time the concrete came in. Ferguson is Coalfield Development's Lincoln County crew chief. He explains that in the wake of the ailing coal industry, his organization is working to create diverse, next-generation jobs. I, I grew up in Lincoln County. That's the whole reason I took this job is because I, I'd go to work, come home. I'd see all these kids with no possibilities. Couldn't get a job because everywhere they'd apply, they'd say, well, we want two to five years of experience. Well, how, how are you going to get to two to five years experience if nobody will hire you? Teaching young people from the region, like Jacob Dyer, how to work with and install solar panels is one way Coalfield Development is hoping to support a more diverse economy. I'd prefer to stay here, stay home, and uh, be around my family and everything and, you know, help the economy, you know. I just, I just want to make a change, and I'm hoping to do that. I felt hopeful after listening to them talk about ways that they can transform communities and I loved every minute of it and I hope the pictures that I take will bring more awareness and attention to their efforts. The photos Kiger took were commissioned by the Claude Worthington Benedum Foundation, a charitable nonprofit that funds economic development projects in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. The title of their latest annual report, which Kiger was hired to help illustrate, Transitioning to West Virginia's New Economy. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Glennis Ford in Wheeling, West Virginia. Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. You're listening to Mountain Talk Monday. Now let's join the conversation rebroadcast of author Ronnie Lundy's appearance on WMMT's Honky Tonk Jukebox, where she's joined by Elizabeth Sanders and Mimi Pickering. Mimi, we were just talking about, let me borrow one of your cookbooks, which, when did this one, <laughs> this is Shuck Bean Stack Cakes and Honest Fried Chicken, the Heart and Soul of Southern Country Kitchens. Yep. Um, when did this one come out? When the one you... you're holding in your hands, uh-huh. which is the hardback copy, came out in 1990. Okay. So it's over 25 years now that it's been out, and um, it's never it's never officially gone out of print, but it went out of stock um, a couple of months back, I guess, or maybe sometime in the last year. Um, Atlantic uh, Monthly Press is who printed it. 
and it went out of stock, and they didn't have it, the book's so old that they didn't have computer disk to reprint <laughs> it. You know, it's, it's in that prehistoric time. So I think what's going to happen is we are um, my agent and I are talking, and we hope that we're going to get to reprint it. I'll get to go back and correct the one recipe that my mother always wanted me to sign the book and correct it. it was, <laughs> oh no, yes, which yes. recipe? It's the uh, well, it's not that shocking, but it's in the it's the fried pie recipe and. Um, and when I, I was testing, when I was testing, I didn't realize that my baking powder yeah. was going flat on me. So apparently, I have I, how much baking powder does it call <laughs> One for? One teaspoon. Yeah, way too much. You just need a, a smidgen of baking powder uh-huh. in there, and all it does is it just makes for a puffier crust. It's very tasty, but you know, but it's just not right. Oh, wasn't right. My my mother's a, a, a friend made it for me. Um, this these were this was in the days where you tested your own recipes and you didn't have my new book. I actually test my own and then I have someone else test them. Uh-huh. So okay, yeah. But anyway, my friend uh, was hosting my first book signing at Carmichael's in Louisville, Kentucky, this great bookstore, and Michael bookstore. made the fried pies, and I, he, I went in and he said, I did something wrong, because <laughs> I know they're not supposed to be puffy like this, and I'm like, no, they're not, you know, and then my mother came, and she said, I want you to sign that, on when you sign the book, <laughs> sign on page 295, Check out. <laughs> and, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't, because I couldn't remember uh, that well, what 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 it was that I needed to correct, but uh-huh. we will correct it if we get to reprint <laughs> the book. Yeah. I'd say that's not too bad of a one out of how many? There's hundred, yeah, yeah. There's over a hundred recipes in there, and I just love how it's just peppered through with stories from your family and the country singers' families. I particularly one of my favorites was um, when you were talking about the mashed potato masher. Yes, that was, I mean, I read that, and if I was more of a eloquent and articulate writer, it could have been me writing that, because I agree with every word of that. That's the kind, I don't know if you want to, would you mind reading that part? <laughs> no, I don't mind at all. Okay, that would be great. I have it. It's very funny that you're saying this, because a friend <laughs> just wrote about this. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> recently, that, that her brother-in-law, who's a gourmet cook, found this kind of potato masher and told her this is the only one to have. Thank you. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Things your mama didn't tell you, but mine told me. This is one of those. You can't make decent mashed potatoes with an electric beater, my mama told me. If you're beating them like that, you're making whipped potatoes, and they just won't taste right. To make mashed potatoes, you've got to mash, and to mash well, you've got to have a first-rate masher. You're likely to encounter two kinds of potato mashers in most kitchen stores. The first has a masher that is a firm zigzag metal rod across the bottom. My mama told me not to fool with that kind because no matter how long you mash, it's going to leave your potatoes with lumps. The masher that you want has a round, open waffle grid across its bottom that the potatoes are pressed through. My mama prefers that one because it mashes the potatoes faster and that way they won't get cold but you got to be careful when you buy one because they make a lot out of flimsy metal that are not, just not worth a hoot. To make sure the masher isn't one of those hootless flimsy kinds, pick it up by its handle in one hand, then press real hard against its masher with the other. If you feel any give, it's not worth your money. But if it stands firm and looks well-made and sturdy, buy it. Because like my mama told me, a good masher is hard to find. 
I agree 100%. That is, that's the kind of masher my mom always used. And I've always said growing up that my favorite utensil is the potato masher, but not just anyone. And I can't, someone who, I don't know, so many folks I feel like don't understand that. And right. I, I've been hunting for, I've not found mine yet. Yeah, I had one of the zigzag kind there that you talk about, but mm-hmm. now I realize it's not the best. Yeah, I've tried to describe it to multiple people, and there's some gratification too growing up mashing the potatoes and watching the potatoes push up through the little <laughs> square the thing. And then you kind of you, you kind of take a knife and you cut them out, and then you cut out the other side, and then there's some still stuck in there, and there's nothing to do when you're done mashing except to lick them off. It's right? true. Absolutely. It's true, because then you have to wash it anyway, so you might as well lick it. <laughs> I was looking for something else in here that mm-hmm. I really loved. Let's see. I was just going to add that uh, that all those 25 years ago, Ronnie came on the Biscuits and Gravy show. The original version of the show, and I think uh, was probably our first uh, writer we had ever had on the show. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) uh, It was so much fun and had this book. And, of course, we were all madly in love with D.Y. then, and, of course, still are. But uh, Exactly. But all the great artists that you'd talked to and their families about this book, and it was just really wonderful. It's so great to have you here repeating it all, doing it and doing new things. Well, it's actually a D. White story that I wanted to tell here. Right. Which is perfect. So, you know, this is 26 years ago, and I'm writing this book, and, and I'm sending it off to New York. And it was a very interesting uh, experience. I had a wonderful, wonderful editor. But um, one of the first, he asked me to write a, chap- a sample chapter and send it to him. And he said, why don't you do meat? And I said, well, I'd rather do vegetables. And he was very <laughs> upset about that. And when I sent him the vegetable chapter, then he called me back and said, I thought you were taking the easy way out by doing vegetables. I figured it would be like three things or whatever. And I was like, no, I wanted to get it out of the way because I had to figure out what I was going to leave out. So it was in this era where people didn't understand Southern food. They thought it was all fried chicken and biscuits and and gravy and fried barbecues. Barbecue, yeah. Yeah. So they didn't understand the huge garden. And they really didn't understand a lot about our lives or sometimes how we spoke. So Mm -hmm. I was looking for, in the back of the book here, uh, uh, like Mimi said, I, I interviewed country music performers. And then a lot of them introduced me to their families. And I got to meet their families. And they gave me recipes. And it was really a beautiful experience. And so I... I had a glossary in the back of the book telling who the people were. And Erlene and Luther Tibbs were Dwight Yoakam's maternal grandparents. And then I write, his song, Readin' Writin' Route 23, describes trips to their house in an Appalachian holler um, and coal miners' prayers dedicated to his grandfather, who died in 1970. Anyway, the copy editor wrote me back. I had a note right there, and she had circled the part where I said, describes trips to their house in an Appalachian holler. And uh, she had holler circled, and she said, can you describe this kind of musical noise sound? We don't understand it. Oh, I've never wow. heard an Appalachian holler. See, I even thought you were going to say she just changed it to hollow. Or no, 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 no. No, 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 she wanted to know about that distinct Appalachian musical holler style of singing. You know? That kind of yelp. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, we could demonstrate, sort of. It's, you know, that, that always brings up my favorite of those is Lee Smith's who got a note back from the editor saying 
A double wide what? <laughs> oh, we live in a double wide. <laughs> That's fascinating. It is. And to see comparatively where, where do you, do you think folks have, have a different understanding now of all this in your... Wow, that's a good question. Um, some people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, I, I, I certainly find more people who have broadened their perspectives about the food that we eat and some who have broadened their perspectives about culture, but it's still pretty amazing. Not too long ago, I was being interviewed by a, a New York newspaper writer and she said to me, so you grew up in Corbin, Kentucky. And I, uh, no, she said, so you grew up in Appalachia. And I said, well, no, I was born in Eastern Kentucky, but I grew up in Louisville. And she said, oh, Louisville, Appalachia, there's no big difference. <laughs> yeah, no, not yeah, at all. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's all Kentucky, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. <laughs> You're all riding thoroughbreds, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I believe in your cookbook you say that there's nothing wrong with waiting on a cold tater or something. No, it's a uh, cold tater is pretty good <laughs> if you're hanging out, you know. Um, yeah, once it's cooked. Once, it, yeah, yes, yes, well, yes, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, although a cold turnip, uh, not cooked, is real good. My mom uh-huh. used to slice turnips and give them to me, and I, you know, to eat before a meal. Or I always got the the core of the cabbage. You know, when she was okay. making slaw, that was. Mm-hmm. I, I thought those were treats when I was a kid growing up. So yeah, and I think. You were mentioning a couple stories that you... Ronnie was um, a music writer, music critic for the Courier-Journal primarily. Yes. Louisville to, Times and Courier-Journal. Times for mm-hmm. a long time uh, before becoming so incredibly famous about all this food <laughs> writing. <laughs> but uh, I had heard it told that you were one of the first to write about D. White Yoakam and his music. <laughs> yes. And of course... We're sure that um, in addition to his talent, you had played a great role in making him a star. I'm sure so, that I shaped us. everything <laughs> exactly. about him. He's, I'm, I'm certain <laughs> that, you know, someday he will acknowledge that. No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, when Dwight, you know, when Dwight first started uh, showing up on the, on the scene, um, he was coming out of California. And there was a there was a whole scene out there with X and um, a lot of the other these kind of alt uh, country bands that were happening, and so here came this guy talking in this Kentucky drawl and talking about where he came from and his roots, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a lot of speculation about whether or not he was authentic, uh, particularly because he grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and of course, if you don't know. Appalachian history, which a lot of people people don't, which most people don't. If you don't know Appalachian history, you don't understand that there have been multiple hillbilly diasporas, and uh, Dwight's family was um, left uh, Betsy Lane, Kentucky, right up outside of Pikeville, um, when he was just a baby. In fact, I think they may have been living... I think the family may have been living in Columbus, and then his mom came back to have him. You know, we we, mm-hmm. we Kentucky women <laughs> want to have our babies in Kentucky, um, but and so there, so people were questioning if he was just you know making up all this stuff about eating squirrel or or whatever. And um, I my I had a wonderful boss at the at the Courier Journal who um, Louisville Times and Courier Journal who would sort of let me 
follow up on his story. And so I went to him and I said, I think this guy's, you know, I got, I got his record, you know, um, blew me away. Just his initial LP release was just incredible. And, um, I went to my boss and said, I think this guy's going to be really big. And he said, okay, go for it. <laughs> and, um, and so it was wonderful. I got to, I got to go up to Columbus, Ohio and meet, uh, Dwight was playing up there. I met his mom, Ruth Ann Ranke. Uh, we became friends. Um, uh, I got to fly out to Austin, Texas and go to Liberty Lunch and see him play there. I actually got to see Dwight open. Let me see if I can remember this <laughs> sequence. I saw Dwight open, uh, and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers were second, and then the third act was Los Lobos, and the headliners were the fabulous Thunderbirds. Wow. Isn't that oh. interesting, <laughs> yeah. you know, how, how, things, how right. things work? But but what 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 was wonderful for me was that um, Dwight and I for I guess over like a uh, almost a year's time we would talk a lot we talked a lot about our our families we talked about that experience of being uh, children of the diaspora and how sometimes that that tugs at you even stronger about your roots. Um, we talked about what it was like to live in a contemporary world and have another foot in a, a rural and a, and a different background. And and um, and it was it, it for me part of part of what I love about the work that I do, which is to go out and ask people things and then get to write it up is that it helps me understand better who I am. It's, it's part of that journey. And so that was a huge part of that journey for me. Um, he was very funny. Uh, uh, one of my favorite things about Dwight was we would have an interview set up and about three or four hours before the interview, my phone would ring and it would be Dwight calling to apologize because he couldn't possibly do the interview because the day was just completely out of control and he would call me later and then he would talk talk for like an hour and a half and I I you know right. and I would keep when notes. he didn't have time yeah, he didn't, well he didn't have time later for the yeah. for the official call so um so yeah it was it was really great and I, if I remember Mimi the way that the way I got hooked up with Apple Shop and met Judy Jennings I mean I'd always known about Apple Shop and had written about um uh had reviewed the music uh-huh. and written about your all's performances but um, CBS um, was doing one of its, um, you know, what, every 10 years, let's go to Appalachia and talk about poverty <laughs> right. uh, shows. Right. But they had come into Pikeville and had filmed, um, I remember that they filmed a new science lab at the high school and that the kids at the high school were so excited about it because they were getting to show off this science lab and blah, blah, blah. Didn't make it. Um, a lot of the other stuff didn't make it. It was your usual um, uh, desperation, drug, and, and negative story. And because it was in Pikeville, they had approached Dwight and had said, can we use your music? Um, mm-hmm. and, and he had said, yeah. I mean, he had heard, you know, they'd gone to high school, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, yes, that they could. And um, um, when, the, when the show came out, he was devastated. And uh, and it was one of those phone calls. He called me. Uh, I I just happened to be at the newspaper office uh, 
and he called and um, or no, I guess I was at home, and he called. And then I went down to the newspaper office and and wrote a piece that we ran in the Courier Journal on the front page, talking about how how betrayed and violated he. It felt that the people were that the people of Pikeville were, and and that had he understood what it was going to be, he would not have used allowed them to use his music. And at one point, they had asked him, "What what should the people do? What should these people do about their poverty?" And I've never forgotten his answer. I've probably forgotten <laughs> the exact words, but what he said was, "Why would you ask me?" what they should do. I would never presume to tell these people what they should do. Ask them what they need and what they want to do about the problems in their community. Yes, Dwight. Amen. Yes. Yeah, and if, if that's the program um, that I think that I remember they featured, I think they called it Muddy Gut Holler. I think you're and right. And it was actually in Floyd County or some of it right. where, where Lizzie's from. And and Dwight is in it really prominently. He's interviewed throughout. Right. And he says all this amazing, positive, wonderful stuff. And then they went and slapped these visuals on top of that that were of the most destitute, deprived people. And it's like they never listened to a word that he said. Exactly. You know, it was really amazing. They came down with a preconceived notion of what they were going to uh, find, and they... They, and as we know, that's the only time yeah. that the national media has ever done this, right? Yeah. That, that, yeah. Thank God for Apple yeah. Show. We, yeah, we actually used that um, that film a lot with the Appalachian Media Institute for quite a while. We would let the students take it apart, deconstruct it, you know. And, I remember uh, that. I remember reading about it, that. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. so, you know, how would asking them how they would make it and, you know, if if... Dwight was saying this, how would you illustrate that? How would you visualize it? You know, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. it was a mess. And mm-hmm. I am i didn't know about his, you know, being so horrified by it, but yeah. I can certainly understand why. Yeah, yeah. Cause... Well, I thought it was really, I mean, it, again, it, he was, he had a certain level of prominence, but to to buck a major television station and say I you know you done, you done me wrong you yeah. done us wrong you know uh, that took a lot of courage for him and it was not I mean I didn't prompt it he just called me and uh-huh. said I, and, and it was so sweet he said can you do something can you can we get something in the paper I I just want people in Kentucky to know that mm-hmm. I didn't know that's what was going to happen I feel like that um, speaks volumes to his yeah. character for sure. Yeah. When he could just separate himself, you know, yeah. completely from it. Yeah. He's right. There. I live out in California. And <clears throat> yeah. Doesn't really matter. We're all right to worship at the idols. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that and a few others will throw in there too. One of the other things, you said horrified in a whole other sense in the in your book, Ronnie talks about or you write about his first time having chili in California. Yeah. And that was that part was pretty funny too. That it just it wasn't quite like home. Not Cincinnati no. chili. No, more like paste. Not. I think is how yeah. it was described. His was a his was uh, his family's chili would fall into the category that I would have called kind of coal camp chili, which was very tomatoey. You know, it was kind of it was stretching, stretched out, stretched out sort of. And what he was, okay. you know, and what he got in California, of course, was chile. You know, he was Which is good in its own right, uh-huh. but not what he was used uh-huh. to, for uh-huh. sure. Uh-huh. How do you all prefer your chili? <laughs> oh, I like a, a well, 
now we could go down the entire road of chili bun. That's right. right. <laughs> um, because because bowl I, of chili. Yeah, bowl of bowl of chili. Um, I do a version that is my mom's, which is um, ground beef and pinto beans, not kidney beans, and it has a little bit of tomato in it. And then I use um, New Mexico red chili and cumin. Yeah. Um, how about you? Well, um, my household is mostly meatless, so I don't make it a lot. But we do make a lot of beans and things. But I, I'm quite fond of the Cincinnati chili, mm-hmm. you know, with the pasta, then the, the pretty heavy meat sauce, and then right. beans, and then some uh, cheddar cheese and some onion. The That's works, right. you know, always. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Skyline That's, chili. My I family guess. was a Skyline family, uh-huh. so when I was... That's, I'm also a Cincinnati chili girl, yeah. and I just figured out, I finally made my first batch of chili ever that was close enough that I liked it last year, <laughs> and I was so happy about it, and it was the brown sugar that did it for that batch. Interesting. It Interesting. works really well, huh. and I don't think I'll ever be able to replicate it <laughs> Try again. a little bit of sorghum syrup next time. Okay. Because that gives that. you even more, that gives you a little more resonance than, it's, it's the same flavor as brown sugar, but it's like a whole tone deeper which goes really uh, well with meat. I will do that. Yeah. In my family, it was never... I spent high school in Cincinnati. My papa was from Pike County, but then they made their way to Cincinnati. Right. And when I was little, my dad and mom moved to East Kentucky when I was about three. So, And then we moved to Cincinnati, so it was like this multiple... Back and up. Um, but... Uh, we never, I don't think I've ever stepped foot in a gold star. Uh, <laughs> just chili, Skyline. Just Skyline. Yeah. Or Skyline or Gold Star, or really, my grandma worked at Blue Ash Chili in Cincinnati. Oh. And so they, that's a whole nother, there's another chili, but out of the two that are most common. Thank you for listening to our program. For more information, visit www.wmmt.org. This has been Mountain Talk, and I'm Kelly Haywood for WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. I hope you have an excellent evening. question that just nags at your brain? Why is there a siren that goes off in Whitesburg every day at 4.30? Is the city water in my area safe to drink straight from the tap? How do people in my town really feel about gun violence? Can I make money farming and still live in the mountains? You wish there was someone to ask, or that you'd happen upon the answer in social media or the news. Well, now you don't have to wait for serendipity. WMMT's Public Affairs Newsroom is offering a way for your questions to become the topics that we report on. It's called Central Appalachia Wonders, C-A-W. Just go to our website at www.wmmt.org C-A-W. Then submit your question, and you might well hear the answer right here on WMMT. Dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio. This is WMMT.
We want to know what you're wondering, so call at us today. WMMT.org slash C-A-W.